worship team for using your gifts to serve us well. Uh, through your gifts, man, we are, uh, our hearts are stirred for Christ. And so let's just give a round of applause just for the worship this morning. It's been... soul-stirring for sure. Um, so if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them up to Psalm chapter 19, 19. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you'll find Psalm 19 on page 456. And also, just before we get started, a thank you to Andy Steen, who came and uh, preached last week and just delivered the word to, uh, to you guys and out of Psalm uh, 115. And Andy, you know, basically came to me and said he's not busy enough in his life um, with five kids um, working full-time and overseeing a house renovation. So he said, can I preach? And uh, we, we allowed him to do that. But no, uh, Andy and I, and we have such a, um, a common love for Jesus Christ and his word that comes out very differently. And I think our church has served well when we can see two completely different styles kind of come together in a common love and passion for the Word of God. And so I appreciate him deeply uh, to be able to step in and do that last week. So here's how I want to start. Um, What do you need to see in a person to consider them to be wise? What do you need to see in a person to say, that person is a wise person? Like, not just a thing they said. I think we'll all get lucky once in a while and actually say something that's wise, you know, here and there. But you look at somebody their whole life, the way they live, the way they speak, the way they act, and you just say, man, that is a life of wisdom. Because here's the thing about wisdom is that it, it's universally a good trait to have. Like, like regardless of who you are, regardless of religion or background or race or what tax bracket you're rolling in, uh, nobody's going to be offended by being called wise. In our over-offended culture, like nobody's going to be like, how dare you call me wise? Everyone accepts it. Everyone knows it. that it's something to pursue. It's something that's positive. But, but here's the thing. Um, while we all agree that wisdom is a good thing, um, if you were to search for, like, what is, who are the wisest people the world has ever seen, um, the results you would find are all over the map. All right, so I did that this week, right? Simple Google search. Who are the wisest people in the world? And it is all over the map, the kind of results you get. So you go to one link, and it starts talking about all these ancient names, right? Confucius and Socrates and Plato, this kind of real ancient wisdom. You go to the next one and you find more of like this patriotic uh, flavor to it where it's talking about Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, like wise men. But now in our world, you go to another site and it's kind of like really elevating like the postmodern tech giants. So you guys got, got guys like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. You're like, man, those guys just had it figured out before anybody else did. Those are wise men. And then you go to other sports sites and you see people such as um, Phil Jackson or uh, John Wooden or Vince Lombardi and that, the wisdom that's in sports. But here's the thing, while it's universally good to be wise, nobody can really agree on like who the wisest people are. Because its definition as to what wisdom is is completely subjective. All right, I, I might go to Rochelle and be like, there's this, there's this baseball coach, his name's John Madden, and he's just like a genius. He's like doing all these defensive shifts, so innovative in the way he coaches. Like he's just a wise man. And Rochelle would be like, I don't care about John Madden. That's not even his name. It's Madden. It's, I forget his first name right now. But it doesn't matter. Like, like, I don't care about baseball shifts. That's not wisdom to me. So in all the research I did, I, I feel like I did find one underlying common denominator. That in the world, 
wisdom is generally associated with success. Because you never find a list of people that nobody's ever heard of when you search for it, who by worldly standards, quote unquote, failed in their life's pursuits. Nobody's considering them wise. And if you dig into uh, who is wise in the world's eyes, you're going to walk away kind of just generally confused, if anything, as to what wisdom actually is. And I start that way because the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 19, which can be categorized as a psalm of wisdom. It's probably the smallest category we've looked at um, of the six that we've looked at this entire summer, but its existence is undeniable. And we really, when you get down to it, you find where wisdom is kind of gained or found or like you you grow into it in the world. In the Bible, it's always just revealed. Wisdom is not to be found or or searched for or or like, like it's some kind of gem in the rough. It's revealed. And in the book of Psalms, there's about 10 in total which are categorized as wisdom psalms. And the theme that kind of ties them all together is this contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the foolish. The the path of wisdom and the path of folly. And lest we fall into the trap of thinking this discussion of wisdom is just kind of pointless or maybe irrelevant, like, let's be rest assured, church. That wisdom is needed today. Not just in matters of eternity, but being able to discern between wisdom and folly has a significant impact on the way you will live your life every single day and, as Jeff just prayed about, how you're going to engage with a fallen world. It takes wisdom to know how to respond when white supremacists claim that their racist agenda is compatible with their church-going lifestyle. It takes wisdom to know what to do when gender is no longer ordained by God, but rather can be fluid and chosen based on desire. And it takes wisdom to know where to go when we realize that we are capable of real evil and sin in our hearts and lives, even if others can't notice it that well. Like, where do you go? What do you do? How do you respond? I think we can recognize that wisdom is needed now more than ever for the church. And so let us have ears to hear this morning as we read and dig into God's word. Read along with me. We're going to break this up in three sections, Psalm 19. And we're going to begin with verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So as Psalm 19 begins to describe what's a life of wisdom, it really goes down this path of revelation. It's revealed, and Psalm 19 is broken down into three sections of divine revelation. And the first is general revelation, a term that is used for the revelation and witness of nature. 
He starts, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. All of creation is a declaration. All of nature is a proclamation and everything we see and hear is a revelation of his glory. This is not the main part of the psalm, but maybe a side note is, is, is church, get outside to hear from God. Like, especially in our culture, man, we can do everything inside. We don't need to go outdoors, but church, get outside to see the glory of God. The first verse in your Bible, the first inspired word that read in the word is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That's probably the first verse you memorized as a kid. It was easy. And if that verse is true, if everything we see is a product of God's creation, then he alone has authority to rule over that creation. Like, God got the first ever patent before patents were even a thing, okay? Like, he has full control over his creation and how it's going to be used and deployed. And you get further down in Genesis 1, and we read that on the second day, God created an expanse in the midst of the waters. And depending on your translation... So if you're reading at the SV like we just read out of, you, it reads that God called the expanse heaven. If you have NIV, which is another popular translation I know many read, it says God called the expanse sky. The notion being that this word, uh, that the sky is what separates the heavens from the earth. This expanse is so unimaginably large that it just proclaims glory. The sky is overwhelming, and it was just spoken into being. Like, we can't even measure the power and majesty of our God. And here's the thing about the sky. You can't get away from it. Like, you can't miss it. Because it is a faithful, daily witness to the glory of God to all people at all times across the world. Just, I mean, just think about this. It's, it's so regular that we don't even think about this, but there has never been a moment, a single moment in human history that the skies have not been testifying to the Lord. You'll never go outside and it just won't be there. You can never remember a day where it wasn't there. And it's true all the time, but, but, but I think this witness of the sky proclaiming the handiwork of God becomes especially evident at night when the sky gets lit up. So King David, the author of this psalm, he's writing this based upon just what he's just seeing in this moment, right? He doesn't even know what he knew then, what we know now about the sky, thanks to science and technology, that we know now on a perfectly clear night, if you were to stand in a single spot, in an area that is not ruined by excess light or pollution, that there are approximately 4,500 stars that are visible in that given moment. But consider that the galaxy we are in, the Milky Way galaxy, that there are more than 300 billion stars in total. And conservative estimates about the size of the whole universe is that there are over 100 billion galaxies. Like, listen, when you get talking about the sky, like the window into the galaxies, the numbers just get silly. 
Like, I don't think there's even names for all those zeros. Like, you would have trouble counting the amount of zeros on those numbers. Like, we're talking exponents, and I haven't learned those since 10th grade. I forget, all right, on how to do that calculation. So, like, high schoolers, you're probably better at this than we are. But to try and get an idea of just how expansive the sky is, like, we can't even get there. The words get very long and weird. And so let's be honest, okay? When it comes to the sky at night, like we're at a little bit of a disadvantage in northern New Jersey. Like if I were to try to use this passage and like bring Caden out on a typical summer night and be like, Caden, look up at the handiwork of God. He'd be like, he's like almost three. He'd be like, yeah, I see seven stars. Like I can see all seven. Uh, That one's an airplane, six stars. (laughs) Like it's an exciting night the four times a year we actually get a glimpse of the Big Dipper, all right, in northern New Jersey. And maybe you're in a different spot of the county than I am, but you, you might look at the sky and just not be impressed. But a couple of weeks ago, we were up in New Hampshire, away from the lights and all the people, and we uh, were just lucky enough to have beautiful, clear skies all week, and it was stunning. Like, we go up there every year, and every year, that first night, like, I get surprised when I walk out at night. Like, it feels like it's on top of you. It takes your breath away, and when you're just kind of looking at that, you can understand why David is sitting down just going, the heavens declare the glory of God. Leads to worship. And about this guy, David says, day to day, the sky pours out speech. Night to night, they reveal knowledge. The voice of creation is pictorial. It's graphic. And it's a clear evidence of a creator. Commenting on this psalm, Charles Spurgeon says, The sun, moon, and stars are God's traveling preachers. And the Apostle Paul, I think there's a great chance, had this psalm in mind as he's writing Romans 1 and affirming that God reveals himself through his creation in a general way so that nobody is without excuse. That because just of nature, because of just going outside, no one is going to be able to come before the Lord on that day and say, I didn't know. No one's going to be able to claim innocence or ignorance. Follow up on the screen, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." Just as the sun goes out through all the earth and no part of the earth can escape its influence, as David says, nothing is hidden from its heat, so the witness and power of God gets put on display all over the earth at all times. And so true wisdom is an understanding of the nature of general revelation, the source of all creation, that there is a God behind that. Before we move on, perhaps an illustration will help. So if you were just to be walking down the Jersey Shore along the water and you just would come across this on the screen, 
And you just roll up upon this on the Jersey Shore. Like, you would take the time to acknowledge the beauty and the size and the detail in this creation. But at some point, you would have a question. What's the question? Who made that? Like, you wouldn't look out onto the waves and be like, man, like, high tide was crazy tonight. <laughs> like, look what that ocean just did out of nowhere. Like, that's amazing. It would pique your interest about searching for the creator. You're not sure exactly what it even signifies. You probably don't even know every detail of the meaning behind it, but it would be plain. It would be clear evidence that there's a skilled artist behind this. That, that, that doesn't just come out of nowhere. It takes way more faith to assume that that sandcastle comes out of nowhere than the, the fact that somebody made it. And likewise, the revelation of nature is made plain. It is clear. And yet, the revelation of nature is general. And that while it is a witness to a creator, to goodness, to power, to beauty and strength, it does not speak of Jesus Christ. The nature does not contain the gospel message. It is meant to place us on a search. It is self-evident, yes and amen, but it's not complete because there's a problem. In that Romans 1 passage, Paul would go on to say that all mankind has suppressed this knowledge. The Jews and the Gentiles, the church kids and the non-church kids, all fall short of his glory despite the clear witness of nature. So general revelation is effective, but it's not enough. We need more. Let's continue reading Psalm 19 now, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. King David takes a seemingly random turn here in Psalm 19, going from talking about the sky and the sun and the stars to now the law of the Lord. But as you look at this psalm as a whole, we do understand the connection, right? That, that, Paul, that David is unveiling true wisdom by declaring the revelation of God, first through nature in a general way, but now through his word in a special way. He goes from general revelation to special revelation. When David says in verse 7, the law of the Lord, the, the law there is not uh, uh, just the, the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic law, right? It's, in this instance, it means that which God has revealed. The best equivalent, if you're looking for an equivalent that we would understand, it would be Scripture, that which God has revealed in what we call the Word of God, the, the Bible. Now, David's scripture at the time of this writing is the Torah, what, what we know as the five, first five books of the Bible. 
But we also know that the same Holy Spirit inspired all of Scripture, including his writings as he's writing this, including the prophets and all the Psalms and later the Gospels and the epistles and what now we call the New Testament. And just as the Holy Spirit inspired the Torah, so it's not a wrong leap to interpret these words and apply them to all of Scripture. General and specific revelation. Two revelations, one author, and it's a revelation of true wisdom. So in these five verses, David gives six attributes of God's word, and it's worth fleshing out. He says, first, the law of the Lord is perfect. The whole of God's word is without blemish. It displays a sovereign love and gives us a vision for redemption and grace. There's no redundancy in Scripture. There's no omissions in Scripture, right? There's not too much, and there's not too little, and every verse is needed. Every word is purposeful. And this is a crime to add to it, and it's a crime to take away from it. And it's so simple to hear, but we we still need to just hear this said aloud, that the Word of God is perfect because God is perfect, Nothing can come out from him that falls short, especially his words. Nothing that can contain fault. And the practical effect of its perfection is, as David says, the reviving of the soul. Listen, conversion is made possible because of its content. The Holy Spirit does its work through an awakening to what we read in here. This Bible, it tells us about God. About, who his character, about his character and his nature, about his plan for the world. It rightly discerns the problem with the universe as sin, rebellion against God and suppression of his will for the purpose of self-glorification by all mankind. This Bible names Jesus Christ as the eternal only Son of God who was sent into the world to die for the sins of the people that have sinned against him. And by his death and resurrection, it puts forth the offer of new life through faith in him. And it shows that Jesus did not die just to make bad people nice, he didn't come to make you generous. He didn't come just to make you empathetic or a good person. Those are all good things, but that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to revive a dead soul and make you new. It is dangerous, even as I look back at my own teaching and preaching, that I can fall into this trap, and I think churches and teachers can do it all the time, and parents as well, where we primarily teach Christian faith as behavior, as teaching moral behavior modification, that you're this way, but you have to be more like this way. You need to be better people when the primary message of the gospel and the word is not to be better, it's to be made new. You can be nice without Jesus. I could be generous without Jesus, but I can't be new. I can't be saved without being born again. And we know that pathway to regeneration and to reconciliation and to new life in Christ because of our Bible. We don't know everything there is to know about the world from the Bible, but we do know enough of what needs to be known to be revived and enter into eternal life. The law of the Lord is perfect. 
Second, the law of the Lord is, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure, right? It is unshakable. It is fully trustworthy. It can hold us up. And so without realizing it, we in our world, in our culture, every single person, they are making dozens and dozens of decisions every single day based on whether they think is sure in their life. A lot of times consciously, a lot of times subconsciously. All right, so you walked in this room and you picked a pew and you sat down and subconsciously you made the decision that that pew is going to hold you up. And it's not just going to cave under you sitting down. You got in your car to drive here this morning, or uh, you, maybe you walked like I did, but let's say you drove a car to come to church this morning. You got into that car with a trustworthy thought that that car is going to start, and it's going to get you where you need to go. And, and you have a, a, a semblance of uh, being assurance that that will happen. We had a, a members get married last Sunday down at the Jersey Shore, and, and, and when Elizabeth walked down the aisle, she was trusting with a sense of assurance that her future spouse is going to be faithful in keeping the vows he's about to say. Every single day, every single decision we make, we rely on what we think will be most sure. And yet, in all those examples, we never completely know for sure. Like, these pews could collapse. We could be sitting on a sinkhole right now and not even know it. Sorry about that. All right, we... we, Your car might not start. It might not get you where you need to go. It might break down. Your spouse could violate his or her wedding vows. It is only with something that is perfect that we can be completely sure of. And notice the practical effect of God's word being sure. David writes, it makes us wise. There it is. Here, the Bible testifies to true wisdom. It's not based on success. It's not based upon age or intelligence. It's based upon your faith in the Word. In the world, wisdom is obtained. It's cultivated. But in the Bible, we are made wise. It is revealed, not found. You and I, we can become smart on our own, but we can only become wise by being awakened to revelation by the grace of God. Third, the precepts of the Lord are right. The precepts of the Lord are right. So that word precepts, it means instruction or, or principles. That there's, there's no mixture of truth and error in your word. There's nothing that's irrelevant. There's no stain of sin in the words it contains. We can't gloss over this point because, listen, like you coming in, most of you, 95% of you are going to go, yeah, the word of God is right. Like, why did I show up this morning? But listen, as simple as it sounds, brothers and sisters, do you believe your Bible is right? Do you have faith that every time you open it, that its instruction and its words are good and accurate in all of it says? And yet, it's one thing to affirm that something is right, and yet still another to actually want to follow or obey what is right. And that ability to do so is only made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So Rochelle and I see this tension every day with our almost three-year-old Caden, right? When he does something wrong, it's usually not because he didn't know what was right. But in the moment, he chose not to follow what was right because he wanted something else, more. Okay, so he knows it's not right to two-hand push his sister into a pile of Legos. But in the moment, she reached for one of his trains, and you don't get near one of Caden's trains, all right? He knows it's not right to throw his dinner on the ground, but in the moment, he was told he had to clear his plate for dessert, and he didn't want to eat it. He knows it's not right to yell out mommy, daddy at 2 a.m., but in the moment, he wants his dad to come in and sing in a very off-key version of Zacchaeus was a wee little man. (laughs) And it's funny when we see it in the context of a three-year-old. But if I were to list the times this past week I didn't do what I knew was right because in the moment I wanted something else, we probably wouldn't laugh. It would probably sound pretty sad. So church, what do we do when what we want or what we think is right conflicts with what God says is right in his good and right word? Because it will happen. We will hear what culture says about a topic and we will want the Bible to say something different based upon our experiences and what we want to be true. And so here's the question. What comes first when forming your doctrine and what you believe? What comes first when forming what you believe? Is it your experience in life or your Bible? Do we bring our experiences to the Word of God and let that dictate how we're going to interpret Scripture? Or do we make Scripture the lens through which we interpret our experiences? This is unbelievably important. And it boils down to whether or not we have faith that the instruction of the word is right. And by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to follow and obey that which we know. And sometimes in your life that's going to look like what David describes in another psalm when he's lying at bed at night and just loving God's instruction so much he can't handle it. He's got such affection for it. And yet there's other times it's going to look like the man in Mark 9 who says to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. But either way, we'll find our footing on the rock of God's word. And in our day, Holding to the conviction that Scripture is right will cost us. More now than ever, and probably more so five years than it is right now. So here's the question I pose to myself while writing this. What am I going to do when the storms of accusation begin to come upon me and come upon us? Will we drift away? And eventually turn on God's word for the sake of cultural acceptance and comfort, or will we stand on the word and persevere through what may come? It is my deep prayer for Grace Church that we will choose to stay on the path, to cling to the word which is right. Because David tells us the practical effect of trusting that the scriptures are right is a rejoicing of the heart. True joy that flows from the revelation of true wisdom may cost you worldly joy, but it will never rob you of eternal joy. You got to keep going. Number four, the commandment of the Lord is pure or radiant. It, It lights up our eyes. 
Okay, so that the presence of light makes vision possible. And, and the more light, the more in the light something is, the clearer it can be seen. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this famous quote where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And it's in that vein is in the light of Scripture where we can have the wisdom in, a discerning, in discerning a complex, constantly changing, complicated world. Where we can see something and put it up against the pure light of the Word and accept it or reject it based upon what the Word says. Okay, so let's talk examples that are pretty relevant right now. It's up against the word of God where we can see the alt-rights declaration that they are just protecting their human rights and reject it as the racist, evil, white supremacist agenda it really is. It's up against the word of God where we can affirm that Jesus was not white, where he did not come to unite the right and build walls, but rather he came to tear down walls and unite the people of all colors and all nations for his glory and thriving of the church. And then perhaps you saw the unbelievably misleading headline by a leading news agency this past week that declared the nation of Iceland is on its way to successfully eliminating Down syndrome from its country. And at first glance, if you're like me, you see a headline like that and it might pique your interest. But upon further investigation, you'll find that their process of eliminating this disease is through abortion of anyone who has it. And so it's not that Iceland has found a way to eliminate Down syndrome. They are simply killing anyone who has it before they're born. And it's madness. And it's pure evil. And it puts a lump in my throat just reading it, let alone all the acceptance it's receiving amongst many. And it's with agonizing joy that I saw parents share pictures of their beautiful, made-in-the-image-of-God children with Down syndrome and loudly proclaim, this son and this daughter of mine is not an enemy to be eliminated. They are a child to be cherished and loved. In church, it is by the word of God that we can put these things up to and see how, how contradictory they are to God's universe. We can see whether or not it stands or falls based upon knowing the commandment of the Lord is pure. Number five, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord here uh, connecting to knowledge, right? Just as that famous passage in Proverbs chapter one that proclaims that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Corrupt things decay and they grow old and they end up in dumpsters, but that which is clean endures. And the word cleanses out the love of sin. It instills a godly reverence that will never settle with wickedness, never compromise with evil, and above all else, it never changes. We would do well to be immersed in that which will never change, as opposed to being immersed in news cycles that are different every single day. And as Jeff prayed, I believe firmly and passionately that Christians should be engaged with the world they're in. That we should be aware of what's happening in our culture, in our politics, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, 
But here's a diagnostic question we all need to answer to. Do we look at Facebook more than we look at the book? Do we spend more time scrolling on Instagram and Twitter than we do in the Word of God? And do we spend more time watching TV than we do reading our Bibles? If so, then it's no wonder why many are doubting God's Word in favor of culture's Word. Because we're being indoctrinated by the wrong thing. We're being swayed by folly as opposed to wisdom. And and you show me a Christian who is not regularly in their word. And I'll show you a Christian who is close to denouncing that which the word says. Just give it some time. The word of God endures forever. Let us live in it for his glory and for the perseverance of our faith. Sixth, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This becomes a fitting kind of all-inclusive finish for King David. After all he says, he rests in the fact that the word is true. It's worth building your life upon. It's not up for debate or trial. Like We're not standing over the word and judging it and deciding its place in this world. We are standing under the word of God. It is judging us and our place in this world. And let it be true of us that we bathe in the word of God. That our vision is shaped by the lens that which the word provides. That we cherish it. That we open it in order to see God and his perfect word for us in a broken world. Oh, church, that we would read our Bibles. All right, let's quickly finish Psalm 19 and read the last three verses. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Very quickly, David displayed general revelation through nature. He revealed special revelation through the scripture. And finally, he tells us the right way to apply or the application of this revelation. By the grace of God, David was shown wisdom through his world, through his word. But rather than just lay claim to them and boast about himself, he prays and begs for mercy before the Lord. Declare me innocent, not only from the sin I know, but but those blind spots that I can't even recognize. Those cultural blind spots that won't even become made clear probably until a century later. Father, forgive me of that which I do that is not even in plain view. David prays for forgiveness. He pleads for deliverance and he hopes for perseverance all by the power and grace of God. This response This is true wisdom. And you don't need a Google search to figure it out. Wisdom, according to the Bible, it's not found. Wisdom is revealed. And the only good and right response is to throw ourselves on the grace and mercy of God and having faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. For in the depths of the Bible, we find that wisdom is a person. Let me close by reading 
Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can follow on the screen. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.